Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Most people start using alcohol and drugs for one good reason. It serves their needs. It helps them escape stress, relieve pain, or cope with sadness. For others, it seems to help them relax, or cope with fears or stress, or even helps them feel more like they fit in. Then, for some reason, something happens. Their brain's reward system wants more, and that desire takes over nearly every aspect of their life. In this episode, we talk about addiction. We'll hear from a courageous HPE team member who will share her personal struggles with alcohol. And we'll talk with one of the world's leading authorities on mental health and addiction, a man who has served as mental health commissioner and chief medical officer of the New York State Office of Mental Health, New York City's chief psychiatrist, if you will, when the World Trade Center was attacked on 9-11. Hello, I'm Bob Peacock. Welcome to a very important episode of Straight Talk for Real Life. During the pandemic, many of us found ourselves drinking more alcohol than we did in the past. Some even used more recreational drugs, all to help cope with the stress and challenges caused by the pandemic. It served our needs and eventually became part of the joke as we started referring to our favorite happy hour drinks as quarantinis. But for many, alcohol is no joke. In 2018, the World Health Organization reported that more than 280 million people worldwide have alcohol use disorder. Over the past two years, stresses of the pandemic made this problem even worse. More than any other drug, alcohol is everywhere. It's legalized, normalized, and glamorized nearly everywhere we look, on billboards and in magazines and on TV and in films. And it's a drug that is more affordable than most. That's the reason that in today's episode on addiction, we primarily focus on alcohol use. While the opioid crisis often receives more attention in the news, alcohol addiction has been deadlier around the globe. But as you'll hear in this episode, what happens in a person's brain is basically the same, whether you become addicted to alcohol or drugs or tobacco, and even in the cases of behavioral addiction like gambling, pornography, and shopping. Addiction can affect anyone. It knows no socioeconomic, racial, or ethnic boundaries, and that's what makes this episode so important. Alcohol addiction is an epidemic that affects more people than you know, and many people you probably know. Very few ever get help. If you're listening and you're struggling with your own addiction, we hope this episode provides the kind of life-changing information and encouragement you need. We want you to know that you're not alone, and the good news is that this story can have a happy ending. So let's get the conversation started. I'd like you to meet a friend of mine who has experienced addiction firsthand. She's an actual HPE team member, someone whom I greatly admire and respect. She's a people leader and a mom. I've asked her to share her very personal story, and she agreed in hopes that it might help even one person listening to this podcast. Allison, welcome. Thank you for the kind introduction, Bob. I'm so excited to be one of your guests today, and I'll start by introducing myself to our listeners in my own words. Hi, I'm Allison, and I'm an alcoholic. 
My sobriety date is July 1st, 2019, and I'm incredibly grateful to be sober today. Allison, first of all, thank you for having the courage to share your story. There may be listeners who may recognize your voice or others who may even know you pretty well, but I guess there are many who had no idea all that you've been through. What are you hoping to accomplish by sharing your story? Well, alcoholism was my nemesis for over 20 years, right? I was trapped in an endless cycle of addiction. Um, And in the last years of my drinking, I was truly beyond miserable. I felt hopeless. Um, And out of sheer desperation, really, I surrendered and accepted help. So today I'm sharing my experience to offer hope. And if there is one person listening that is inspired by my story to get the help they need, then it's 100% worth it. Congratulations on three years of sobriety. That's an amazing accomplishment. How difficult was it for you to keep your addiction a secret? You had to be afraid that if people knew, you would lose respect and maybe even lose your job. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's exhausting. I over-engineered my life around alcohol. You know, I had a persona that I presented to the outside world, um, and then the real me that was suffering behind the scenes. So it was a constant balance of feeding my addiction and then trying to look normal to everyone else. Were you what we would call a functional alcoholic, someone who is able to hold down a job and function reasonably well, even though you were addicted to alcohol? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, I'd say that I looked like someone that had it all together. You know, I've had a successful career. I've excelled in my jobs. I've been raising an incredible daughter as a single mom. I've traveled the world. I own my own home. Um, But on the inside, I was a mess. I was filled with self-hatred, anxiety, depression, um, and I was fueled by a constant need for alcohol. How did drinking make you feel? Well, um, for me, the very first real drink that I had around 16 or 17, I was hooked, right? I instantly loved the sense of comfort and ease that alcohol brought me. I felt like I fit in. I felt more confident. I felt like I could have easier social interactions with people. Um, so, you know, it felt great to begin with. And I think it's fine to be completely honest about that. Um, it felt good until it didn't, it served my needs until it didn't. How much would you say you were drinking at the time? Towards the end of my drinking, I'd say that I was drinking, drinking the equivalent of 15 to 20 shots a day. Had anyone at any time told you that you had a drinking problem? And if so, how did you respond? There was one point uh, that a family member did approach me with concerns about my drinking, but at that time, I wasn't in a place to hear it. You know, I just kept on doing what alcoholics do best, which is drinking. I, I did not see any need at that point to stop. And how did your dependency to alcohol affect your relationships? Talk about that. How, how did it affect your work and your family? So for me, when I was in active addiction, um, I was just never fully present, right? All I was ever concerned with was 
how can I get out of this situation, whether it was work or a family gathering, you know, how can I get out of this situation so I can go and drink? Mm. Everything I planned revolved around drinking. Will there be alcohol at this event? If the answer was no, then I probably don't want to go. You know, addiction is incredibly selfish and it absolutely creates collateral damage to those closest to you. I think we've all heard that, you know, the first step of getting help is admitting that you have a problem. How hard was it for you to take that first step? And what kept you from getting help when you first realized it? Yeah, so I knew I had a problem with drinking many years before I got help. My health was in bad shape. I was having crippling panic attacks. My liver was broken. I was slowly killing myself with alcohol. And even that was not enough to make me stop. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this because I know I'm not alone in this. I've heard the story from others. I was that person that would go online and take the, am I an alcoholic quiz? Right. And I would answer every question that would fully indicate that I had a problem with drinking. And I would still say, nah, that's not me. I mean, I truly was living in denial despite, you know, medical records telling me my, my health was failing. Um, you know, besides all of that, I'm very independent and I'm a planner. And I knew that getting help would mean taking time off of work, asking my family for help with my daughter. And there were just so many logistics involved, which seemed impossible at the time. Thinking back, what is the worst part of addiction? Um, and, and if you would describe what it was like when you thought it couldn't get any worse. So, you know, besides the obvious physical and mental impacts, the worst part of addiction for me was not being able to stop. You know, I would wake up every morning and promise myself that I wouldn't drink that day. And by noon, I was already counting down the minutes until I could drink again. And it was just a daily cycle of defeat and utter shame. It was miserable. Well, the, the good news is that Allison's story doesn't end there. We're going to hear the rest of her story in a moment. But before we do, I'd like to invite Dr. Lloyd Setter to join the conversation. Dr. Setter, welcome. Glad to be here, Bob and Allison. Dr. Lloyd Setter is a world-renowned psychiatrist, teacher, public health administrator, and humanitarian. Among his very impressive and long list of accomplishments, Dr. Setterer has been chief medical officer of McLean Hospital, which is a Harvard teaching hospital, and mental health commissioner and chief medical officer of the New York State Office of Mental Health, the largest state mental health agency in the U.S., during the stressful times of 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy. He has received so many honors, including being named Doctor of the Year from the National Council on Behavioral Health Care, representing over 3,000 mental health, addiction, and social service organizations. Dr. Setter is also an accomplished writer and author of 14 books, including The Family Guide to Mental Health Care and The Addiction Solution, Treating Our Dependence on Opioids and Other Drugs. 
His writings have appeared in the world's most prestigious newspapers and publications. Dr. Sutter, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast. You're so humble that you've asked us not to call you Dr. Sutter, but I have so much respect for you. I'll call you Dr. Lloyd. Is that okay? It is fine. Thank you. <laughs> you you heard Allison's story, and I'm sure you've heard many other stories just like that in your career. How similar to some of those stories that you've heard and, and treated in your career? Very similar, as Allison knows, and independent in many ways of what the substance or behavior may be, that whether it's alcohol, opioids, gambling, the process in the, our brains is the same, that it, our brains are pirated away, first by a pleasure response, a dopamine response, and then a cascade afterwards. So that's what happens inside the black box, and that's what creates the addiction. All right. Now, I want to talk more about that in just a minute. Someone who has an addiction will continue to make unhealthy decisions despite the consequences like legal or health issues or even money issues because addiction changes the brain. In your book, The Addiction Solution, you present an analogy of someone who is overweight. His doctor tells him he needs to lose weight for some very compelling reasons. And the patient says, you're right, doc, I'll do it. But nothing changes. What happens in our brains that makes things like alcohol or drugs so necessary and irresistible, even when we know they're destructible? Perhaps the greatest force is a craving that once somebody discovers how much relief or pleasure or pain uh, mitigation they're going to get, the brain wants more of it. And that leads to taking more of it. And then pretty soon that leads to craving because you can't take it enough to keep your blood levels up there all day long. They go down. And when they go down, that's when the craving kicks in. And that pirates the brain. That takes over every other need, whether it's family, work, uh, or health. Some people say that addiction is a disease. Is it? And, and what does that even mean when we say that alcoholism is a brain disease? It's an important concept, and I think it's really terrific and insufficient because our brain is diseased as a consequence of alcohol. We can recover from it. But alcohol is also a psychological problem, a sociological problem, an economic problem. And you put all those together and you see why there are such high rates and why alcohol is the primary killer nationwide and worldwide. From drugs. And Allison, I want you to be a part of this conversation too. Our, our culture glamorizes partying and happy hour. Uh, we, we use alcohol as an excuse to get together with friends. Allison, was there a time when you knew that you had crossed that line, that alcohol had kind of taken over your brain? Yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I had that first drink, when I was, you know, in high school, I I was instantly hooked, but I didn't actually start drinking alcoholically until years after that. 
Um, but the obsession with alcohol set in with that first drink immediately, you know, um, and I, I love that you mentioned that our culture glamorizes, you know, glamorizes partying and happy hours and really associates most social gatherings with alcohol. Um, you even see things out there saying, you've been a great mom today, time for your wine. And so, you know, social media and culture in general is perpetuating um, a normalization of alcohol, which is a poison and making it feel like it's okay to do this. And for non-alcoholics or regular drinkers that can moderate their drinking, um, sure, you know, it can be an enjoyable experience for people that are alcoholics. Um, it's really an excuse to drink. You seek out those opportunities to feed your addiction. Dr. Lloyd, I think, you know, for myself and for others that may be wondering if they have a drinking problem or a problem with another sort of an addiction, can you kind of talk about what some of those signs and symptoms are? What should family members and friends think about if they're concerned that a loved one may be struggling with addiction? Or if I'm struggling with addiction myself, what are some of those signs? What a great question, Allison. Because most people think that you can realize or identify an addiction by how you feel in relation to somebody hopeless or angry or whatever. But in fact, the way to I best way to identify it is by identifying the behaviors, the consequences of the addiction. It's more neutral. It's a way of beginning to talk to somebody. And it's a information that you're going to want to have if you uh, go in and accompany your loved one to uh, treatment. And the behaviors are isolate himself, doesn't go to uh, soccer practice anymore, picks at his food, is tremulous, his pants fall off because he's lost so much weight. These are ways of saying this. Honey, there's something really the matter here. I observe all of this, and it turns out, you know, your sister does or your brother does as well. Dr. Lloyd, what is the, the kind of the clinical difference between a heavy drinker and being an alcoholic? This is a gradient uh, from, uh, you know, having a one drink to essentially being hooked on alcohol or opioids. It's a gradient, and uh, that's... Uh, you know, it's, it's when it's getting to the high side of the gradient, that's when you know, you've got to do something before you pay even more consequences. Are certain people at risk of becoming addicted? I've read that conditions like depression or bipolar disorder can predispose you to alcohol addiction, especially if you use alcohol to self-medicate. And in your book, uh, Ink Stained for Life, you described how, as a psychiatrist, you think about addictions, not just in chemical terms, but also you look for the risk and protective factors. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, uh, the uh, some some people like to think that alcoholism or, or opioid addiction is a genetic that there's a genetic predisposition. If there is, that's not a dominant force in its uh, development. In fact, it is more children who are traumatized 
during their growing up there, bullied there, uh, beaten uh, there, isolated there, shamed by their families, they're ignored by their peers. Uh, these are uh, the ways that uh, somebody then begins to increasingly solve that all those problems by taking a drink. So the risk, one risk is a trauma. There are also risks associated with what's called the social determinants of health and mental health, poverty, not having a reliable home, food insecurity, violence in the home, violence in the neighborhood, because all of these um, create a huge uh, and persistent distress or stress response in our bodies, mediated by cortisol and adrenaline, and that's what gets quieted down when you knock down that drink. And talk about protective factors, things like having an engaged family. Yes, um, that, this is really important. Some people are more blessed than others. Some can build on it, but having a supportive family is one of the greatest protective factors. Having an education is, having a job yeah. is, that these are ways by which somebody uh, gets a grip on their addiction and keeps it under control uh, because of what strengths they derive from all of that. So Dr. Lloyd, um, I know for me, I've beaten myself up for years about being an alcoholic and considered myself a bad person for many years of my life. And so I'm curious from your perspective, how much does a person's character have to do with determining or even predicting if he or she will become addicted to drugs or alcohol? That's a, also a great question, which has been studied. And character is uh, not perhaps the best way to describe somebody who's at risk for addiction, because uh, character is established in us when we're children. This is our personality, our temperament. So there are studies that suggest that certain character types, particularly those people who externalize, blame other people, don't take responsibility, are more prone to alcohol, and they are, uh, but it's not as if it's a DNA singularly driven disorder. Right. Well, going through this and, and meeting other um, persons in recovery, you know, I've met many people who were addicted to alcohol who said they were also using other drugs. That wasn't my personal experience, but have you seen that to be true in your experience? And if so, you know, why does that happen? Absolutely. Uh, and I've been at this a long time. And when I began decades ago, I would see, you know, my colleagues would see somebody who had alcoholism, that they're the only drug that they took to get high or relief was alcohol. But over time, that's changed. And the modal person, person is more likely to come in using multiple drugs than one. That maybe alcohol is their drug of choice, but then they can't sleep. So they're on uh, Ambien or other uh, sleep medications or feeling withdrawal from the alcohol during the day. And they're on a tranquilizer uh, or they discovered like crystal meth. So uh, that's uh, what's happening. And 
Uh, you can't ignore the others, uh, by, but the primary one is the one to hang on to because that's the one that's most important to the person uh, who's ill. I know that uh, World Health Organization years ago reported on a study that basically said alcohol serves no positive benefits at all. Uh, it said that, that there's basically no safe limit for drinking alcohol because the risk of damage to your health increases with each drink. So as an addiction and a behavioral expert, I'd like to know your thoughts. This was something uh, we struggled with when I was mental health commissioner in New York City. and We wanted to make a statement about what's safe drinking. And we did. And it was one drink a day for a woman five a week and twice as many for a man because of metabolism. While some people using alcohol or other substances at that frequency will accelerate their use, most people will have this as a so part of their social uh, and uh, life uh, and their way of quieting themselves. So there's, uh, there, there are most people, um, in fact, can drink very moderately, but beware of when the numbers go up because that's the slippery slope. Mm -hmm. I know that finding an overall solution for addiction has been a constant challenge and a goal for you. Why are youth so vulnerable uh, to using alcohol, drugs, tobacco, and why is it so important for cities to find a solution for addiction? Let's start with the second question, particularly for young people, because our brains are under construction. They're still being built uh, into the 20s. Uh, mid-twenties for men, early-twenties for women, which means that the brain is vulnerable to outside agents, to agents that may be toxic to the nervous system. And that's the danger of addiction in youth, that the brain is somehow or other kept from normal development, and uh, there's a big price that, that comes with that. You know, being a mom myself, um, addiction is, is something I'm always concerned about making sure my daughter has the proper education around it. I mean, she witnessed my struggle with alcoholism and was, you know, front and center to uh, the disease and, and how it impacted my life and how it impacted her life. So, you know, for parents that may be listening, how can we educate our children on, you know, early uses of alcohol or drugs and how it can really affect their lives? Good question again. And for a long time, the answer would have been, you know, talk to them, exhort them. Don't you know how this is going to destroy your brain or your schoolwork? And there was a whole program called the D.A.R.E. program where police officers brought convicts into school to say, this is what's going to happen to you. That program, paradoxically, not only didn't work, it produced greater rates of substance use. And the, one of the explanations for that is that youth in particular are uh, drawn to uh, adventure, to are drawn to risk. And that that is indeed part of the survival of our species because a long time ago, that 12-year-old needed to go forage for food, needed to go find a mate in another uh, 
a village, whatever. So the the stimulating uh, the uh, child by uh, scaring the child doesn't work. Exhortation doesn't work with children. But what what does work, and this has become uh, um, it's pretty well established, proven, but hardly used, is that people who uh, um, are developing addiction, particularly young people exposed, uh, are wanting for certain skills. And so, for example, uh, you know, uh, Lloyd is uh, 14 years old and he's in the uh, lunchroom and a fellow, a friend comes up with a blunt, a big uh, cannabis joint and says, Hey, you want to talk? And the pressure on Lloyd at that moment is very intense. And he doesn't have a script. He doesn't have a way of getting out of that except by putting the smoke inside of him. And in fact, these kids can be trained to say, uh, oh, wow, that, that looks like good stuff. But you know what? I've got a soccer game at 3 o'clock. And I have just this ton of homework. Uh, no, not for me. And that allows a child to protect herself or himself and uh, also not lose social standing at the same time. That's really important. The same thing is true for families. When you combine skill building in youth or members of a family with parents, uh, then the effect, uh, protective effect, is ampl amplified. And a good example of that is what was discovered many years ago, which is that if you have dinner with your kids, no TV, no texting, you know, how'd your day go, Lloyd or Bob, uh, that every night at a particular time, that these are children who are less prone to find a way to uh, uh, deal with uh, the difficulties in their life because they are repeatedly exposed to the fact that that support comes from the people around the table. I love that, the importance of dinner. I want to talk just real quickly about COVID. Dr. Lloyd, you led the, the mental health disaster responses in New York City during 9-11. Do you think that COVID-19 will lead to an increase in addiction? COVID-19, in my opinion, is a disaster. And it may look very different from a tsunami uh, or planes bombing a building. But the elements of a disaster are that it produces illness, it produces death, it kills people, it disables people, it creates financial hardships. People are socially isolated. Their bonds are broken in the case with COVID because of public health requirements, but also disaster makes it not makes life not normal anymore. So you lose social support. And uh, the... Uh, other aspect of uh, a disaster like COVID, unlike 9-11, is you don't know when the end is in sight, which is important. You put all those elements together and you have a disaster, and COVID is such a disaster. And what we saw, 9-11, Sandy, other instances, uh, post-disaster was, in fact, an increase in substance use. And the only one that we had a good measure for 
was alcohol, but alcohol went up, and there were reports of this early on with COVID. And it makes sense, because after a day of sitting, you know, in the chair, in your Zoom uh, uh, position, and uh, not having a real contact with other people, what do you want? You want something to transport you away from that, and that's that drink, or that's that toke of uh, cannabis. And so these all these circumstances breed uh, the development of uh, substance problems where to use. And I've heard you talk before about one of the things that you kind of have learned over the years is about human nature and our uh, resiliency. Can you talk about that? That's such a important point there, Bob. We humans are resilient. What that means is that we can take a hit and not stay down. And the evidence for that is that we're still alive uh, a million years after our ancestors. How did we do that? Because we certainly had a lot of uh, trauma coming our way, fear coming our way, and people find a way. Most people are resilient. They need certain supports to make that happen. They need uh, some hope. Faith makes a big difference. Interesting. What can a loved one or even a colleague do to help someone with an addiction? There, you have to wait for the right moment. Uh, uh, trying to bring up a problem, even if you've done it, if you have your behavioral list to say, hey, what's going on here? I'm concerned. Timing is really important because if somebody is, you know, uh, at the height of withdrawal, irritable and so forth, you're going to blow it and they're going to blow you off. So find a moment that uh, seems more conducive to having a conversation and a conversation that's just beginning. Don't expect big change with one conversation. What you can hope for is that you begin to open a conversation whose endpoint is, yeah, you know, these are problems. And then the response is, oh, well, let me help you get care. I'll go with you. I'll find it out. And that's a really good uh, uh, sequence uh, for families to follow. While addiction is an awful experience for anyone who goes through it. There's also hope. Isn't that right, Dr. Lloyd? Absolutely. There are so many studies which never make the front pages of newspapers about recovery, about how many people, what yet vast percentage of people had a drinking problem, uh, smoked too much uh, opioids, uh, shot up, and then over time, it went away. And for no specific reason, there wasn't a singular intervention or treatment because different people found their way to recovery in different ways. But there's a whole lot of people out there like you, Allison, who discovered this is something I'm going to uh, rid my life of and the benefits are going to be so great. And you'll, you'll have those, uh, and you'll be part of that large group that does recover. The other thing is, thank you for being so candid, because most people who recover from a serious uh, substance problem don't want to broadcast it. 
just like you didn't. Because even though they may be not using, it's still a stigmatizing uh, condition. People would wonder then, you know, will I, my job be threatened and so forth. Uh, so we don't know how many people are doing well because they're keeping it to themselves. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Dr. Lloyd. And, and what, what I had to seriously consider before doing this podcast is, is this going to prevent me from advancing in my career? Are my friends going to think about me differently that don't know my story? Um, but truly, you know, I'm so passionate about wellness and both personally and professionally that if I can do anything to um, help with the stigma, you know, I am all in as a alcoholic in recovery. I can be open and honest about my experience. And by showing up sober to life every day, I can be a model to others for what's possible. Yes, because there's the hope that you had it bad and you worked at your recovery and it's working. There's hope for you. Never give up hope. Never give up hope. Absolutely. So, Dr. Lloyd, you, you talked about what happens in our brains when we become addicted. That understanding is really important to building a treatment plan. Isn't that right? Absolutely, because when we understand what's going on in the brain, we can think, what are the specific ways that we can affect that neuron area, that part of the brain? And they're different, they're, and there are interventions that we have. So, for example... Uh, there are four major areas, but I'll start with one, which is the uh, dopamine hit that comes from the substance. And that's a well, powerful experience. And Allison, like you said, you knew right away you wanted more of that. And that's what happens repeatedly with some tolerance over time with uh, a substance that, that our dopamine is fired up and we feel good. And there is one, uh, there are now a couple of federally approved medications. Uh, this is called the Medication Assisted Treatment, MAT, for uh, substances. And one that is um, particularly uh, uh, well known, less so for alcohol, is uh, buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, which was legalized by the feds in, uh, almost 20 years ago. It's prescribed by a physician, now uh, nurses, uh, assistants, and so forth, uh, for a month. And somebody takes it every day. And the ability of that drug to reduce their craving produces remarkable reductions in overdoses over the next 6 to 12 months. People to get better. So medication is an example of working on that section of the brain, intervening there so that you're doing something to uh, control that dopamine hit. Then that dopamine hit ignites a cascade and another region immediately uh, activated uh, is our drive and motivational center. We have the experience of, hey, that was really good. I want more of that. That's the motivational center, which is the orbital frontal cortex involved with drive and motivation. And we have 
integrations there. One that was developed uh, decades ago for people with a whole problem is called motivational interviewing, which is about helping somebody tilt the balance uh, towards recovery as opposed to, uh, and it's uh, as opposed to staying uh, hooked. And uh, it's powerful when it's done by uh, physicians in primary care and in other settings. So, so motivational interviewing is a way of uh, getting at that section. Also, uh, cognitive behavioral uh, therapies, which help somebody identify that experience, that overwhelming drive, and then begin to find ways to uh, mitigate that, you know, to call a friend, go for a walk, etc. So those two interventions are really key to this second area, the motivational drive area in the brain. Does it often take more than just one form of treatment? That's my view, which is, you know, if I or a loved one were ill, I would want to go at every site that would make a difference because it's additive. And uh, that, so those there, and then there's the frontal cortex, you know, the front of our brain, the judgment part, also then uh, gets stirred and says, hey, there's a train out of control here. What can I do? And the frontal cortex is not very powerful against uh, motivation and, and pleasure, but it can be strengthened. And there the strength comes from support, support, support. And that's why AA and other 12-step groups are so wonderful in terms of giving people the kind of support that their frontal cortex can begin to put the brakes on the substance. And then the last one is um, the what, how the brain encodes this whole experience, you know, that um, take a substance, you have an experience, you want some more. And there is a center, amygdala hippocampus, which encodes uh, these memories, remembers what's salient, remembers what one body, what means a lot to somebody. And the problem with that is that these become cues. And uh, remember Pavlov's dogs? Right. He, he taught, he, he gave us conditioned response. He showed that these dogs will respond to a cue. They'll salivate uh, to a bell without, uh, without there being actual food there. And that's an example of encoding of cues. And cues are ubiquitous uh, for substances there drinking on television, ads, uh, watching friends. These are all cues that also um, tilt the balance in the wrong direction. So, so how can you make a difference there? That's also uh, by cognitive behavioral treatments, which is basically a way of thinking through carefully with help what is happening at that moment. When does it happen? How does it happen? What triggers it? And at that moment, also, what are the one or two things I can first do to uh, make a difference to protect myself? So, Dr. Lloyd, I've studied this personally so much, and the brain is so complex, and I'm so fascinated by all the things that happen within our brains um, when you're in active addiction. And 
You know, I have a simple question, one that I've been asked multiple times, and there may be no simple answer, but I think for those people that don't understand addiction, what does it mean to say, why can't you just quit? It means that you don't get it whatsoever. You don't understand why, what's going on there. And this goes back to one of the, my key themes in the addiction book, and, which is that behavior serves a purpose. So that, you know, why can't you quit? Well, that's actually a, 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 not a bad question to ask, but in a different way, which is what's going on here? What needs are you satisfying? What pain are you relieving when you take those drinks, when you smoke that dope? Um, what, uh, that's because that's meeting somebody where they are. That's their heartache. That's their need. And that's, I think, where you start. So, Allison, I wanted to ask you, when did you decide that enough was enough and you had to get help? Well, I mean, simply put, I, I just ran out of energy. I was desperate. I was so tired of waking up miserable, forgetting what happened the night before, wondering if I had said or done something stupid. Um, I needed alcohol to function at the most basic level. At this point, if I didn't have alcohol in my system, I was shaking. I was having blurry vision. Um, I simply couldn't do the most basic task, and it was exhausting. Um, my mental health had gotten progressively worse, and I realized that I was going to die if I didn't get help. Um, and I just simply gave up. I gave in, and I made a call to my family who really didn't have an awareness of my situation and how much and for how long I had been drinking. And I just said, I need help. Yes, I, I would uh, reframe and say that you didn't give up, but that you stepped up at that moment because you knew your life was at stake and the people that you loved were going to are being affected. So you did step up at that time and, you know, good for you, really, in the deepest sense. Thank you, Dr. Lloyd. I know that we have listeners to this podcast who aren't HPE team members. So this next question really won't apply to them. But I'm curious, what are some of the HPE resources that you found helpful during your recovery, Allison? Yeah. So, you know, as Dr. Lloyd mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's many paths to recovery. And it's not one size fits all. It, it wasn't for me. It wasn't for my friends that I have connections with in the recovery community. You know, everyone's path to recovery looks different. And for me, I needed a physical separation from alcohol. So I chose to spend five weeks in an inpatient treatment center. And, you know, during that time, I was very fortunate to have my family's support to keep my doctor while I was gone. And HP has a leave policy. So I was able to take that time off of work to get well, really. And it didn't end there. Um, sobriety is the number one priority in every single day that I'm alive on this earth. Um, I maintain my sobriety um, through a 12-step support community. 
I also go to therapy regularly where I practice a lot of CBT techniques that Dr. Lloyd mentioned previously. And I make sure to stay very connected to other alcoholics um, who have gone through similar experiences uh, and can provide that firsthand support that many of us are looking for. I want to underline one point that you make, Allison, about the leave policy. You have an enlightened employer. You have an employer that not only is being human and kindly to you, but who recognizes that you're a valuable asset that's going down the drain, whose replacement will cost a lot more, that it's in the company's interest for you to recover as well. And more and more companies are discovering that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm incredibly grateful for the support from HP and and I think a lot of people who may be in my situation may be worried about what does this mean for my job? You know, if I'm sick, what what can I do? If I have an addiction, what can I do? And if you think about it at a, a physical level, if you had cancer or a heart condition and you needed treatment for that or surgery, no one gives that a second thought. You know, they, they let their their manager know about that. They take the time off. They get better. They come back to work. Because addiction is so stigmatized, many people fear even taking advantage of the leave benefit to um, take care of their health to get well from this debilitating situation. Allison, do you miss drinking? Is it is it still difficult for you to be around friends and family who are drinking alcohol? Or have you made peace with the idea that taking even one drink can be dangerous? Yeah, for an alcoholic, there's no such thing as one drink, right, Bob? There's <laughs> one drink leads to the next, and then um, you don't know where that's going to take you. So I have accepted the fact that I can never have a drink again in my life, or I will die. Um, I know that from from the experience I was living. To say, do I miss drinking? Um, sure. I think, you know, there's times where I have, you know, a a passing thought of, oh, it's a hot day, a cold margarita would be fabulous right now. But it's very easy for me to play that tape forward and see where that's going to lead me. And that's enough to <laughs> to keep me from entertaining the idea of a first drink. Um, you know, and, well, and, well, and what is the alternative that you, of the the cold drink that you mix for yourself that isn't a margarita and quenches that thirst and beats the heat. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way of, of thinking about it. What What's your substitute there that's positive and healthy? For some people, they enjoy drinking alcohol-free cocktails. That's not my choice. Um, that's too triggering mm-hmm. for me. So I uh, have my daily ice-cold Diet Coke, and um, I simply... Change, change the behavior pattern in that moment. If I'm thinking about drinking, well, then maybe I need to go to a, go on a walk. Maybe I need to call a friend. Maybe I need to meditate for a few minutes. So redirecting those thoughts into positive, healthy behaviors has been very, um, very helpful for me. And then in terms of, you know, is it difficult for you to be around family and friends who are drinking alcohol? I think, you know, one, one thought I had when I stopped drinking was, how am I going to enjoy life now? You know, how am I going to go on vacation and not have a drink? Or how am I going to eat a fabulous steak without a glass of red wine? 
um, those are real thoughts that I had. And, and there's some insanity behind that because once you can get through that, you can see that life can be just as enjoyable without the alcohol. And, um, I don't worry about surrounding myself with others who may, who may be drinking. I don't intentionally go to a bar and hang out there, but if there's something happening, I feel confident enough in my sobriety that I can be in those situations and not be tempted. Do you think it's a kindness when friends or family refrain from drinking? They're at dinner with you or they're out or some nice place and they can have a drink without consequence, but they purposefully don't so as to create uh, that kind of statement, which is not drinking is just fine for you and for me too. Yeah, I mean, I think respect is the right word to use there. I never want anyone to feel uncomfortable around me if they're drinking. Um, and I would never ask somebody to refrain from drinking around me. Um, but my family is wonderful. Um, we go out to dinner and everyone enjoys iced tea and um, they can drink normally. They can drink without consequences, like you said, but it's their way of showing their support for me. And I just find that incredibly touching. Um, you feel loved. You feel surrounded by support. So I've, I've also heard that uh, a lot of people going through addictions uh, describe kind of isolation uh, and, and the lies that they feel. And going to treatment is like stepping out of that isolation into a community uh, when you can actually talk about what's going on in your life. Was that your case, Allison? Yeah. You know, I've talked about the leave policy, getting that initial break to be able to go and focus on getting well was absolutely key. But the other piece of it is maintaining sobriety is, is an ongoing commitment. Uh, for me, I didn't just go to treatment, come out of treatment and be cured, right? <laughs> I get a daily reprieve from alcohol um, based on taking care of myself. And so, you know, I did start with the EAP program as an initial point of contact to understand what are my options as far as treatment, as far as therapy. And they were able to kind of, you know, outline the different paths that I could take. Um, and I've continued with therapy, as I've mentioned, on an ongoing basis. Um, thanks to the help from the EAP. Another thing that's been really helpful for me is mindfulness and meditation. And HP offers all of our team members worldwide a free subscription to Headspace. And I will tell you, this has been a lifesaver for me. Um, you know, there's times throughout the day my anxiety will spike up. And I know that I have to get that under control very quickly. And so I'll take a step away. And sometimes I'll do a three-minute meditation on Headspace just reset, reset my nervous system, calm my body down, and then I can come back and refocus and, and pick up my day again. Consider, consider how convenient and how financially affordable and how effective that meditation period, that structured uh, meditation period on Headspace or elsewhere is for you, and, and it's there for others as well. This is an example of how you build resilience. Absolutely, absolutely. So as we conclude, I want people who are going through an addiction 
to know that there can be a happy ending. Allison, what is your life like now? Yeah, you know, for me, alcoholism was incredibly isolating, right? Because I didn't want anyone to know that I had a problem. And so a lot of my drinking and a lot of those behaviors were done in secret. Um, There's a lot of shame associated with addiction. And, you know, even taking the step forward to ask for help from HPE to take the time off that I needed was scary. Um, I worried about how people were going to perceive me and how my confidentiality was going to be respected. And it was to the nth degree. Um, it's a very confidential process. The only people at HP that know that I'm in recovery are people that I've chosen to tell on my own. So I would encourage anyone who has or thinks they're struggling with a problem to go in with confidence that you're going to get the support you need from HR at HPE, from your people leader to be able to take care of yourself and get well. So looking back, what would you say to your 21-year-old self? Are there two or three things that you want people to understand who are going through an addiction right now? You know, my life is wonderful now. I couldn't imagine um, even a few years ago living the way that I get to live now. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, learning to accept reality as it comes (laughs) and having healthy ways of coping with everyday life, it can be challenging. But I'm present and alcohol no longer controls my every move. You know, I'm living my life now instead of just surviving it. And I'm so grateful. I feel free. You've recovered access to the kind of normal pleasures that alcohol or another substance overwhelmed. That the only pleasure, the only drive was to get that drink. And instead, you're discovering, well, it'd be nice to go for a walk with my daughter or be nice to listen to some music or be nice to cook myself a nice dinner. These are all the pleasures that are lost during addiction and can be regained. Absolutely. 100%. It's finding joy in the simple things in life that I used to um, overlook because I wasn't present to enjoy them, to experience them. And you're right. Those little things like cooking dinner, going on a walk, watching a sunset Mm. that you just overlook um, when you're in active addiction are memories now. It's wonderful. So what would I say to my 21-year-old self knowing now what I know? I mean, honestly, I think it what I'm about to go through is, is your life experience. It's going to be hard, um, but you'll come out on the other side of this and share your experience, your strength, your hope with others who might struggle the same way you do. I think this is how my life was supposed to be, and I accept it and grow from it. Um, and if I could say two or three things to somebody who may be struggling right now, I would say, you're not a bad person. You're a sick person. And there is help, and recovery is absolutely possible. So, Dr. Lloyd, what is the solution? Uh, Are we, as a society, doing enough, or perhaps more appropriately, uh, are we doing the right things to address the addiction epidemic? Hardly. uh, We're doing better than we were a few years ago because of all the opioid money, but uh, this country tends to believe in supply-side solutions to substances. And what I mean by that is 
cutting off the supply. Prohibition being an example of how that failed. Border interdiction. Buy and bust, which is the police setting people up. These are methods of uh, control that are very popular in this country, uh, as well as uh, consequences that you're going to get sick or the massive criminalization that has resulted from people with substance use disorders. And that also, of course, has a disproportionate effect on people of color. So, Dr. Lloyd Setter, what a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, it's just great what you're doing. And it's a privilege to uh, talk with you. And Allison, I just want to thank you for your honesty, your courage for opening up and sharing your story uh, in hopes that someone, even just one person listening, uh, will see their story through yours. Uh, in my opinion, that is the true definition of courage, the, the definition of a hero. It's taking action on behalf of others despite all else and despite your own fears. Uh, you are an inspiration to me. Your story just proves that there is hope. Life can get better. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. And thanks, Dr. Lloyd, for the fantastic conversation. It's really good to speak with you. And you've offered so much to other people and families uh, who may be suffering. If you're going through an addiction and you want to find out how you can start getting your life back together, as you've heard today, one of the best places to start at HPE is our Employee Assistance Program. The experts there can provide the support you need, as well as important information for both team members and your families. As anyone who listens to this podcast knows, HPE is committed to supporting our team member community with great resources that can help you cope with whatever life throws at you, even addictions. As always, if you're in the U.S., you'll find all those resources on HPE Wellness. And if you're outside the U.S., you'll find them on the Global Wellness page. If you want to learn more about addiction, I can personally recommend Dr. Lloyd Setter's book, The Addiction Solution. He writes with empathy and warmth, and his expertise comes from decades of experience. Straight Talk for Real Life is produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. If this is the first time you've listened, we hope you found some value in today's podcast. And if you're a regular listener, I just want to say thank you. We hope you subscribe so you know whenever new episodes are posted. Until next time, please take care. Let's talk again soon. Mm -hmm.